Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm author and publisher Tracy L. Flatten. It's my belief that the most interesting, creative, and original voices today are heard outside of the big corporations, studios, and galleries. Individuals of courage, inspiration, and vision are seizing the opportunities to create and promote their art themselves. I'm here to support them and to bring their stories to you. On this show, I'll interview independent artists of all kinds, unusual thinkers, and even some healers about their process. How do they do it? How do they start with an idea and bring it to life in the world? This show intends to illuminate the journey. Feel free to call in to 516-453-6052 with questions or live chat with me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artist thinkers. Great to have you with us. Tracy L. Slatten, hosting Independent Artists and Thinkers. I'm so happy to welcome you to the show tonight. We've got a great show lined up for you. And this is a new time for us, um, 8 in the evening, New York time. It's kind of cool. It's a beautiful evening here in New York City, and I've already had dinner, so uh, I'm feeling very relaxed, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the show. I'm really also delighted that so many people are listening to the show uh, live and in the archives and in the iTunes podcast channel. So thank you for tuning in, and I really hope you're enjoying the show because I am. I created this show to support those brave souls who are operating or sometimes just thinking outside the structures of the big established corporations. As the intro to the show says, I intend to illuminate the unusual journey and to bring it to you. I'm interested in alternatives to conventional thinking and conventional answers. I'm interested in creativity, fresh ideas, unusual perspectives, and originality. And this show aims to bring you models of people who embody those qualities. So something I've been kind of thinking about for the last several weeks, um, and I'm going to put it out there, and that's this, and that's every spiritual act is an act of defiance in a materialistic world. So go be kind, go be generous, go be peaceful. It's Completely, those are completely acts of defiance. Also, um, the live chat is open, so you can live chat me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artist thinkers, and you're welcome to call in with questions or comments to 516-453-6052. Email me in between shows if you'd like to suggest a guest or to have me ask questions of a particular guest. You can reach me at Tracy at TracyLSatin.com, and that's T-R-A-C-I at TracyLSatin.com. Also, I just want to say the podcasts are available now on Blueberry and on Stitcher, as well as on the iTunes podcast channel, and I suggest those because, unfortunately, Blog Talk Radio just has way too many advertisements. Um, So there are lots of ways to listen. Tune in and keep checking the website, IndependentArtistThinkers.com, and the Blog Talk Radio page to find out who will be on the show. I am so delighted and honored today to have art critic and curator Joseph Bravo. And when we talked before the show, he mentioned Jacques Derrida to me, and he was the first person to do that since I was in college, which is kind of cool. 
Joseph Bravo is an art curator, consultant, and critic. He was the host and writer of the show Defining Art on KMBH, a PBS affiliate. He has been an art history instructor, an educator, a museum director, and a curator. He is available for speaking engagements, museum tours, contract curation, and teaching. And you can find out more about Joseph at www.josephmbravo.com. Joseph, hello. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Tracy. It's glad to be here. Thank you for coming on. Um, I'm really delighted. I know you and Sabin connected in San Antonio, so I'm really delighted that you are available to talk to us tonight. Well, it's my privilege, and uh, I had a wonderful conversation with Sabin. When the shoe was on the other foot, I was interviewing him, and uh, it was a a very intriguing discussion and, and, and quite illuminating. So those that interview will be broken up into a few smaller segments and be on YouTube. Is that correct? That's what we're we're trying to do right now. It's in post production right now. That's cool. So if you let me know, I'll make sure to mention it. You know, one of my intros when and I'll publicize it also from my end. You'll be the first to know. Awesome. So, Joseph, here's my usual opening question for my guests, and I open with this because it really situates listeners into who you are and what you're about. And it's a big question, let me warn you. So take it and make it your own and run with it and do what you want with it. And the question is this, and it's long. How did you begin your journey, and what has it taken for you to arrive at the place where you are currently? What training did you have? When did you know you were going to be involved with the arts? Were the arts a major presence in your home when you were growing up? What did you think you would be? So tell me about your childhood and lead up to now. Well, that's a that's a mouthful of a question, as as you stated. Um, there was uh, some art around my house when I was growing up. My parents had had lived in Europe uh, and had worked in the State Department, and um, they had collected French antiques. And my father had grown up in first a stone carving shop and then a plaster uh, modeling shop before he pursued a, a, a career as a, an Air Force logistics officer. He went a, a different way. And he was, a, uh, by my understanding, the first man in, in countless generations to uh, pursue a different trade than uh, uh, stone carving. And uh, my mother collected French antiques, uh, particularly 18th and early 19th century French antiques. And my father would would lecture me periodically on on the craft involved in these things. He was a, he wasn't a great philosopher of art or aesthetics, but he was a great appreciator of of fine craftsmanship. And so he, you know, allowed me to to pay attention to these things. And this this was a uh, something that he clearly took uh, great pride in and, and put the importance in. And um, my mother would occasionally take me to uh, museums, uh, but I was growing up in central Texas, so there was a, a finite amount of that uh, uh, available. There, but there was a local museum called the Macne, uh in those days. It's still here today. And it had a wonderful collection of, of French Impressionist and early modernist paintings. And I remember walking around there as a young adolescent. And then I was 13, I think. And I, I literally ridden 
like a dozen miles on my bicycle to go to, to the museum one day. And the McNay had a show of the Von Tyson collection. Uh, and I was walking around the show by myself, minding my own business. And, and an elderly gentleman walked up to me and asked me some poignant questions about a, a painting. And I answered them. And then he walked me to the next painting and asked me some more questions. And, and then he would, you know, offer some tidbits of information. And after about 30 minutes or so, I realized this guy knows a lot about these paintings. Yeah. I, I didn't know, I didn't know who this old man was. Walked me around for about an hour and a half. Wow. Schooled me on these paintings that I had seen before, but I had not known this much about some of them. And, and uh, then somebody who turned out to be the director of the museum came up and, and gently prodded him away and he didn't seem eager to go away there was a, a soiree going on at the, at the museum that late afternoon and they wanted this gentleman's attention and it turned out that that gentleman was Baron Von Tyson himself oh my god that's a great story I had no idea I didn't know who Baron Von Tyson was I think he was just an interesting old fellow that was uh, seemed to know a lot about paintings uh, and and I had evidently monopolized his time, much to the frustration of the social aristocracy of, of the <laughs> museum that, that afternoon. And um, I remember being very impressed at his his approach to the artwork and how seriously he took all of these these works. And I remember thinking, I'd be that's an interesting fellow. It'd be, it wouldn't be bad to be his age and be like him. Mm. Uh, at that point. Now, I've since learned more about Baron von Tyson, and that, that's a complicated story. There's aspects of him I might not want to emulate. But uh, in his appreciation of, of fine art, it, it made me realize the degree to which there was a real expertise available for that. And then years later, I was at the university and I was studying everything, and literally everything. I was. I had uh, at one point my wife, well, the woman who was going to become my wife, came up to me and asked me, uh, uh, "What's your major?" And I said, "I don't know." And then she asked me, uh, "Well, uh, you know, what's your GPA?" And I said, "I don't know." And she said, "Oh, are you a senior or what?" And I said, "I don't know." And she said, "Well, how many hours have you got?" I said, "I don't know." And she was incredulous. She <laughs> 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 and. She was working in, in university administration at the time, and so she looked it up, and she came back to me a few hours later, and she said, you really need to graduate. And I said, so why do I need to graduate? And she said, because you have 260 undergraduate hours, and it's about time for you to get out of here. And I said, well, what's my major? She said, what would you like it to be? And she offered a half a dozen degrees that I could have if I took one or two more courses. And I said, well, what's the quickest way out of here? And she said, well, you can test out of, of English 1023. They, this is a verb. And I had taken like three senior seminars in, in literature that year. And I said, I'm not about to take another class and, <laughs> and this is a verb. She said, no, you just got to go take a test. And I said, when's it offered? She said, in an hour over there. And I went and took it and I graduated with a degree in humanities. But that same semester, um, she had encouraged me to go down and apply for an internship at the San Antonio Museum of Art. 
And I was supposed to go down and, and uh, apply for an internship in Mexican folk art. And just by coincidence, as I walked in the door that day, they were wheeling a, a bunch of, of uh, uh, black figure attic vases across the Great Hall of the Museum. Oh, I and love I those. followed I followed that cart as it were. Where's that going? <laughs> Don't see those every day in, in central, central Texas. Now. And so uh, I followed down into the, this new wing that was being constructed and Roman marbles all over the place. And there was Egyptian statuary and there were Greek vases by the dozens. And, and I was like, hey, this is cool. I don't know about this Mexican folk art stuff, which turned out to be ironic because I ended up becoming quite interested in Mexican folk art eventually. But at that point, I said, well, this is really neat. Who's in charge of this? So I went up to the front desk and I <clears throat> asked to speak to the, the curator because I said, well, you know, you got all this stuff. I'll ask about this stuff. And that curator had just been hired. And he had been hired two weeks earlier. And he was a world-class Egyptologist named Dr. Gary Scott went on to become the head of the American Research Center in, in Egypt and essentially the gatekeeper from all American archaeology in Egypt. Wow. And uh, I said, I'd like to be your intern. <laughs> and he said, well, I just got here. Uh, I don't even know where my desk drawers are. And we've got to open this this new wing in in like six to eight weeks. And, uh, and uh you know, I don't even know how to work with the education department. You have to set up an internship. Now's not a good time. And basically, you say, like, you know, go away, kid. You bother me. And, and in those days, I had hair down past my patoot. And uh, I could tell that this Boston Brahmin was not impressed. And he started, as he started to walk away, I grabbed his arm, and I told him, look, I don't know where you're from, but this is Texas. Everything you think has already been done hasn't. Everybody you think knows what they're doing doesn't. Everybody's told you they're going to do something, may not. When you figure that out, give me a call. <laughs> and he was aghast. <laughs> and he was really appalled. He was, he was, what is the audacity of this, this young man to tell me this? And um, 10 days later, he called the head of the art department at the university where I had been attending at UTSA and spoke to the head of the art department. He says, what's up with this, this um, Joe Bravo guy? Who does he think he is? And the head of the art department told him, so I'll tell you about Joe Bravo is that if I was ever going to rob a bank, I'd want Joe to drive the getaway car. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought a dubious recommendation for a guy who was going to have to go catalog antiquity. Uh, And, but that was just the situation that the curator was in. And it turned out that what I had told him was indeed somewhat prophetic. And I came, he called me up and I came to work as an intern in the museum. And he turned to me and he said, make a list of all the antiquities. I said, what do you mean make a list? You ain't got one? Because I don't know what the stuff costs, but there's a lot of it. (laughs) You should have a list. You know, he said, no, we don't. I said, see what I told you. <laughs> Everything you thought had been done hadn't been done. And so my very first assignment was literally to go search all the way through the museum and the storage rooms and all, everywhere you could find every cabinet of the museum, try to find all the antiquities. And there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pieces. And 
make that first catalog of this privately donated collection to the museum. And that collection was the most important collection of classical antiquity to come to any museum in the world in half a century. Wow. It had been amassed by, by a man named Gilbert M. Denman, Jr. And he was a collector of the old school in that regard. And concerned about provenance before it was cool to be concerned about provenance with antiquities. And mm-hmm. um, that started a beautiful relationship. Uh, I worked uh, for Dr. Gary Scott. Instead of doing three hours a week for my internship, I did 38 hours a week and 40 hours a week and then 60 hours a week. And I did that for over a year for, for free. And then he went and approached the collector and said, we don't want to lose Joe at this point. He's still handy. And the collector started depositing a, a, a pittance in an account once a year to pay me. Mm. And then for pretty much the next decade, I worked as an associate curator of, of classical antiquities and, and Egyptology at the San Antonio Museum of Art. And then cross-trained in the museum across that period. I worked as a preparator and then a head preparator and for a period as a head of facilities and then an associate registrar and then eventually as a, as a coordinator of school programming and those of training and that sort of thing. But I had done pretty much everything from tar the roof and start up the boiler to catalog the art to develop curriculum for the school system. And I kind of learned the ways of, of the craft. Mm. And that started me down a path of, of no return. And I still see Dr. Scott every once in a while. And I wag my finger at him and say, you were a bad influence. <laughs> you know, he started me down this this road that's been a blessing and a curse. <clears throat> so that's how I, I sort of got into the field and, and, and stayed in it. And then while I was studying at the university, and this is, I think, relevant, I was frustrated by what was happening with this provincialism in contemporary art. Mm-hmm. Uh, people didn't teach craft uh, of any kind, um, uh, especially where I was, uh, you know, out. And I wasn't in New York. I wasn't in Los Angeles, you know. And so we would get, you know, all the contemporary art, third generation, you know, 10 years late, 20 years late. And so a lot of what we would get would be B team and C team derivative con- con- contemporary art, not always the best and the brightest of it. It seemed ill-crafted, ill-considered, uh, pretentious in its rhetoric. And <clears throat> and while I could somewhat stand that, uh, at, at the same time, I was annoyed that people who did seem to be highly skilled and highly crafted and who were less pretentious in rhetoric were being dismissed. Mm-hmm. And that that seemed frustrating to me. You know, it was, you know, it was up for debate whether there's this mediocrity was art, but it seemed to me it shouldn't be a matter of debate when somebody was making traditional craft was art. And so I went looking for where do they keep people who know how to paint? And I, being in San Antonio, I ended up in the barrio where there was still a rich and vibrant culture and where figurative work that reflected the culture and the metaphysic of, of the worldview of the barrio. Uh, and social and cultural relevance was right there on the surface. Now, if you went to the museum, you couldn't see it. If you went to the university, you, you know, you didn't see it. Or, you, or if a young Latino came to the university, they would say, who's your audience? And then that basically meant, 
evidently not the you know the B team player from the East Coast or the West Coast who moved down here and said your art doesn't look like my art and doesn't reflect my priorities. Therefore, you shouldn't be making it. Mm-hmm. And that annoyed that annoyed me. <laughs> it annoyed me a lot. And I went, don't let this guy tell you how to make art. <laughs> he doesn't know any more than you do about it. Probably doesn't know as much as you do about it. And over time, I ended up becoming somewhat of a Latino art specialist. And because that's where I saw authenticity. And to this day, it's still utterly underrepresented in contemporary art collections in the United States. And so I'm, at this point, still an ardent advocate uh, for these underrepresented kinds of art. Well, we talked, you and I talked um, on the phone and... Uh, so I was going to ask you, what do you mean by curating the art of the other to yourself? And how do you curate art of which you are not necessarily an initiate? Because you are not, you know, Latin. You're, you're Italian, right? Well, of Italian origin. Yeah. Well, it, it's complicated. When I, when, I was, when I was at the San Antonio Museum of Art, I was asked to curate uh, an exhibit of oceanic art. And this was the art of the South Pacific. And I thought it odd that I had been asked because I was not a, didn't have any special expertise in this or, or anything. Uh, but I think that at the time they needed to put up an oceanic exhibit. They had a collection. They had a gallery. Uh, I was handy. And they knew that I would throw the kitchen sink at it. And so I spent in the better part of a year just pathologically researching it and then attributing the works in the collection. And then I built this permanent exhibit that was up for 25 years or more. And, uh, and or maybe not 25 years, I think it was about 20 years that it was up. And, and uh, after I had put it up, I became concerned that I didn't think I had been sufficiently expert. And so I went to the Met and, and, and looked at their collection and looked at how they curated it. And after the first day, initially, I felt a little sense of vindication. I uh, thought, well, it looks like most of my attributions were like their attributions. My labels look pretty much like their labels. My objects look pretty much like their objects. I laid it out pretty much like they did. Well, if I did it like the Met, must have been okay. Hmm. And then the next day, I had this awful thought. Well, somebody had just walked up to me and said, have you ever thought about Oceanic? And I said, no. And they said, start thinking about it. Go curate an exhibit. Now, no one walked into that exhibit, you know, a couple of years later and, and presumed that they just got some Yahoo to do this. They presumed that it was a world-class expert. in that. And I began to wonder, well, we all presume things happen one way at the Met. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. do we know that they knew any more than I did? Evidently, we came to the same conclusion. Maybe they didn't know that much more than I did. And I began to wonder, what if we had both done it wrong? And maybe the Met wasn't vindication. Maybe we had may have both made the same kinds of mistakes. And that was a disturbing thought, and it would not mm-hmm. go away. And so I ended up writing my master's thesis on curatorial methodology of oceanic art at the Metropolitan. And and reading extensively on otherness theory, and particularly Thomas McElvilly, who had wrote a, written a scathing review of a, 
an oceanic exhibition that had been mixed with with surrealism at uh, at MoMA at one point, and I found his argument quite persuasive. And that when you were moving out of the conventional Western aesthetic tradition, and then you were starting to contextualize that art and evaluate that art without being an initiate of that culture, that's a problem. Mm. And you have to ask, who is the audience and what right do you have to appropriate these objects uh, and contextualize them to that audience? And in the case of the exhibit I had done in San Antonio, there probably wasn't a whole lot of Samoans walking through the galleries to be offended. Mm -hmm. And most people who walked through probably didn't realize what mistakes I had made. But one of the other things that had hit me about about the oceanic art is that there were still oceanic artists making art. And if you came to any oceanic gallery in the country, which you found is somewhere about the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, before World War II, evidently the last oceanic artist died. Because if you walked into every gallery, it, it, mm-hmm. it just said, you know, it said, you know, late 19th, early 20th century. And then there was nothing that ever happened after that. And I thought, there's got to be somebody out there making something. Still, right. And I went. I looked at, at at the contemporary wing, and I walked around the contemporary wing. And you never saw an Aboriginal dot painting in the contemporary wing at MoMA, or at the Met, or anywhere else. And I was going like, "Well, what the heck's happened?" And so I began, began to say, "Well, look, if you're going to do an oceanic, why doesn't it come right up to the present and show the contemporary experience of cultural negotiation between Aboriginal people and Western civilization in the present?" And why mm-hmm. is that not there? And it's not up in your contemporary gallery, and it's not in your oceanic gallery either. Is that not a form of negating of an entire people? And I wasn't trying to be PC about this. It just didn't seem rational. It didn't seem just. It just it, it didn't. It seemed a truncated, incomplete art history. Didn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot from that methodology. And. It changed the way I approached cultural context when looking at works of art. And that became relevant to my studies of Latino-centric art as well. Now, initially, I went in that direction because of an aesthetic affinity, and, and I appreciated the aesthetic. But over time, I began to realize how much cultural context mattered and endeavored to become as much as was possible an initiate of that culture. I spent a lot of time in the artist studios. I spent a lot of time eating tacos in, in the barrio with them. I spent a lot of time listening to various Latinos' discussions that they tend to have when Anglos aren't around. And, you know, you know and this is what people say things in front of you and go, well, yeah, but that's, you know, he doesn't count. You know, you know, everybody has had that experience at some, some point. Right, right. And you start to hear those phenomena, you get to hear what it sounds like sort of behind the curtain, anybody's curtain. And you began to realize the complexity of the nuance and that Latino culture was not a monolith by any stretch of the imagination. And I think I was talking to Cheech Marine one day, and he said something to the effect that where there were, were uh, three Chicanos, there were at least seven opinions. <laughs> uh, That's great. And, and you know, every time I, I, I quote Cheech to, for saying that to, to a Chicano, I've never had a Chicano object to that, that remark. 
because there's truth in it. And I, and I know as Italian-American, there's truth in, in that in, in, in my culture as well. But, you know, I've known maybe four Italians my whole life, and I've known thousands of mestizos in, in South Texas. And so I'm really culturally much more part of the Mestizaje experience, uh, although not ethnically part of it. And that's become... I'm sort of a hybrid of that of, of that experience, and it's become relevant to how what my priorities are in contemporary art today. Well, this is a good moment. Um, we're about halfway through the show almost, so let's pause for just thirty seconds. I'm going to play a commercial for my books. So hang on, don't go anywhere. I'm okay. Playing. When you find an author you love, you read everything they publish. International best-selling author Tracy L. Slatton is one of those writers. Her book Immortal is a rags-to-riches-to-burnt-at-the-stake story of an orphan boy in Renaissance Florence. Broken is the story of a fallen angel in Nazi-occupied Paris and her award-winning romantic paranormal dystopian after-book series. Also, her bittersweet sci-fi romantic comedy, The Love of My Other Life. Read one and you will be hooked. Find all of her books at TracyLSlatton.com. Joseph, we're back. Well, glad to be back. So was there a moment, was there a particular painting that you looked at when the light bulb went over your head and you said to yourself, I love this art, the art of the barrio? Was there, just, was there a single moment or was it an accumulation of moments? No, it was an accumulation of moments. It wasn't any one moment. It was... Um, it was a, a whole series of ever-deepening experiences. And when I would ask why of a Latino artist, why are you painting this? The answer was always very personal. They didn't give me a bunch of BS. They tell you a story <laughs> that was very personal to their life. And, and you know, like I said, they didn't quote Jacques Derrida. You know, uh, they, uh, they, they gave you a very authentic answer that you, you couldn't refute. And it was what it was, and it was authentic. And I had been dealing with so much pretense mm-hmm. that there was a whole lot less of it, especially in those days. And um, and so, no, it wasn't any one uh, painting. There were a couple of three artists who were, uh, you know, transformative in terms of my deepening of respect for Latino art. There was Jesse Trevino was particularly in, important he had been a vietnam vet who had lost one arm in the war and painted these painted these fabulous uh, uh, uh photorealistic paintings of, of sort of domestic life in the barrio uh there was adon hernandez who had painted the paintings for the movie blood in blood out which was a, a cult film in, in, in the barrio and uh, it starred Jesse Amato playing the, the role of an artist, but the paintings had actually been painted by Jesse's friend, Adon, uh, for the movie. And I, I got to know Adon and, and see him paint sort of the, you know, the, the rich life of the street with a, a compassion and celebration uh, uh, of his of approach to it. Um, and this seemed earthy and, and relevant, but, you know, beautifully rendered. Um, there was... A dynamic duo in town. Uh, there was a, uh, a young man about my age who had a younger acolyte. His name was uh, 
Alex Rubio. And he painted in a very impressionist, uh, expressionist, rather uh, sort of psychedelic style. Uh, but his young, and he painted murals in, in, uh, in the and But he had this young assistant with him that was only like 12 or 13 years old when he started, a guy named Vincent Valdez. And I got to watch Vincent grow up and become, you know, one of the most, you know, accomplished artists in the region and just a fabulous, fabulous figurative uh, 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 painter, painting narratives that you don't see outside the barrio as a rule. Mm -hmm. His subject matter was uh, in dialogue. He was a younger generation, uh, but it was in dialogue with the fine art world. He had had the privilege of going off to the Rhode Island School of Design. Not a lot of folks from the barrio get to do that. He did, and he brought that back to the hood. And that, and that inspired so many other young artists. And so, you know, those four in particular, you know, really sent me down a path until I discovered, you know, just dozens and dozens and dozens more. Say so Martinez or Roberto Gonzalez or, or Roberto Gonzalez or so many. So well, many. from your looking at a little bit on your blog, I'm going to throw a question at you that I think you and Sabin also talked about, and that is, how has representational art been marginalized? Um, less so now than when we were coming up in the 80s and 90s and, and early aughts. Uh, there was a sense that if you painted representationalism, uh, it was, they had this derogatory word, kitsch. They, used, they didn't understand the word, you know, or the origins of the word, but they used it, and, and they threw it out there as a way of dismissing anything that was representational. And it was, it was a glib dismissal over and over again. If anything had any sentiment at all, any profound emotion at all other than alienation or irony, then it was dismissed as, as trite and unsophisticated. There was a, a, a presumption that uh, <clears throat> that the uh, presence of, of skill in, indicated the absence of profundity. And then that got inverted to something even more ridiculous, where the absence of skill indicated the presence of profundity. And that just got more absurd by the moment. And Let me ask this you. Notion that, yeah. Let me ask you. I saw this on your blog. Quote, these include verifiable claims that the CIA and the U.S. State Department threw their not inconsiderable influence behind this aesthetic movement. While this may be news to many, for years it has been widely understood among art historians that Cold War politics played no small role in the rise of the, of the abstract expressionist movement in the United States. Can you talk about that? And how does that go along with marginalization of representational art? It's clearly a fact. If you look at it, who was on the board of MoMA uh, in, in the, at the at the post-war period? It, it was pretty much the intelligence establishment sitting on that board. And if you looked at the connection of Nelson Rockefeller to the State Department and and to his brother David, they had their own agendas. Now I, we can make them more nefarious than they necessarily were, but it was it was fairly self-evident. The, the Cold War was on. Uh, uh, there was a concern that the intelligentsia of, of Europe uh, were uh, going to be leaning more toward the Soviet bloc. And one of the things working as a propaganda mechanism against the Soviet bloc 
was their rigid aesthetic and dogmatic approach to social realism and, 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 the, and the propagandistic dogma uh, of the service of art. I mean, Marxism had a, had a very narrow view of art. I think even most Marxists would acknowledge that today. And it wasn't gonna, a competitive view among the intelligentsia in Europe. And I, and I think that, that, that Rockefellers and others at the time looked at that and said, this is an opportunity. We can invite all these Bauhaus folks, all these Terstiel folks and whatnot, and we can bring them to New York. And one, uh, upgrade the status of New York as an art capital, because you told the people of Paris you know, 40 years earlier that New York was going to eclipse Paris as an art capital. They would have laughed in your face. But I think uh, this establishment saw this opportunity to have uh, uh, covalent interests with a lot of modernism. Now, some of the irony was that, indeed, a lot of the modernist artists leaned pretty far to the left in their own personal politics and had Marxist sympathies themselves, although the Soviet system did not really tolerate their aesthetic. So they had their own little paradox that they had to, had to deal with at that time. But as the canon was being created more and more by the market and by MoMA, and that's starting to happen more at that time, rather than by an academy, per se, then de facto, whatever Mrs. Rockefeller bought and Nelson bought and they put in their museum that David paid for, then that had more prestige, more press, more whatever, more market demand among a certain aristocratic class. And so that was going to leverage that in that favor. And then others will tend to follow rather than lead and say, well, if that's where the money is going, follow the money. Mm. And so taste started to move into that direction. And quite a few artists found that if they painted figuration, they had a harder time selling it, if, uh, at least at higher prices than if they moved toward abstraction. This is not to say there weren't plenty of sincere abstractions. There were. There were plenty of good ones as well. And so I think sometimes when people want to say, oh, abstraction was, you know, it was a communist, I mean, a, a, you know, a capitalist conspiracy or whatnot, or, or whatever, a CIA conspiracy. I think that's a gross oversimplification. But there was a covalence between abstract expressionism, political power. Well, I For whatever had, um, reason, they have had, that happened. I had art critic um, Jim Cooper on the show a couple, like a month and a half ago, and he and I were talking, when was the death of the idea that beauty, excellence, and the artist's skill mattered? And I thought it was with World War II, but he said, no, it was with the signing of the Treaty of Versailles, but that's when I think World War II began anyways. Case could be made. I mean, it's, it's somewhat arbitrary distinction. But after World War One, there was sort of a cult cultural collapse for some good reasons, a lot of optimism had existed in that period, and it was a period leading up to that, that gilded age, and that optimism proved unfounded for a variety of reasons. And there was sort of an existential crisis in Western civilization at that moment. And so when Duchamp comes out with irony at that moment and calls BS on the hypocrisy around it, and when you looked at the corruption in business at that period and the corruption in militaries during that period and the corruption in politics during that period and, the, and, and how technology didn't save you and exploited you and everything, 
and and killed you and everything else. All that was just piling up, and people had lost confidence in any kind of uh, social order. It sounds like and mocking that social order seemed like a <laughs> like a good thing to do at that point, you know. Uh, and I and I think some of my friends who were classicists, you know, they they tried to demonize Duchamp. I think he had a point. You know, uh, there was a reason at someone's nose at the society at that moment. And then whether that leads to the Treaty of Versailles and, and, and the horrors that would then come out of World War II and all the stuff that's going to happen. Yeah, it's it's no wonder that things become about individuation and alienation and absurdity and, and irony because society seems to leave you with, you know, little else to conclude at that point. But that's really social psychological as much as it is aesthetic. And the society's art was reflecting the state of the society, for better and for worse. And can, you summarize, can you summarize some of the more important points of what you've learned along this way as an art curator and critic? Hmm. One... It's not about what you're like as a curator. It's not about what you like. It's not about your own personal taste. We're not interior decorators. Okay. (laughs) Shouldn't be. It often is, but shouldn't be. That's called bad curating. Okay. Okay. Many of the time I have hung an artwork that I would not take home and hung it in a gallery and not that I would not take home and hang in my living room. Curators are trying to at best, create a narrative. They go and they do their research. They see what's going on. They report their findings. And they report them with a beginning, middle, and an end and draw a conclusion. And then they use the works that support their findings to make the art historical or critical or philosophical observation it is their intent to make as a scholar. So what are some of the conclusions you've drawn Interesting. Um, if you'd asked me that question 30 years ago, I had a litany of answers for it. And uh, every year I get older, and I'm less certain what the answer to that question is. Um, and I don't mean to be evasive, but one of the conclusions I've drawn is that uh, art is culturally dependent and its context matters whether it's contemporary abstraction or whether it's, it's academic realism or whatever kind of art it is, the notion that art simply speaks for itself, not necessarily sufficiently for itself. It sure helps if you have crib notes. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, the more you know about, about the, the culture of, of Aboriginal people in New Arnhem Land in Australia, the more sense a dot painting from Australia means to you, makes you. The more cultural context you have, the more you can derive meaning and relevance from it. And so cultural context is critical to understanding works of art and having how many available meanings can be derived from a work of art. The more you bring to it, the more you can get out of it. But you want to also avoid merely projecting your own identity and needs onto the work. It's one thing to derive something from a work of art that's actually there, whether the artist was self-aware of it or not. 
it's quite another another thing to say. Well, for the purposes of my ideology, I need something to be there, so I'm going to describe it as if it was there. That's different, and that's not good curating. So, I think you know our job as as curators is to research and report our findings and to be peer reviewed. It's a suggestion. It's not the last word, and there's always going to be another last word after your show. And, you know, you, you do a permanent exhibit in a, in a museum, 20 years later, somebody comes and takes it down. You learn how permanent it was. Mm-hmm. It's not. The artwork is much more permanent than the exhibit, any exhibit. And sometimes I think that if a curator does their job well, you don't even know they've been there. You just take it for granted. Mm-hmm. We kind of notice curating when it's ostentatious, and it's usually ostentatiously bad. When curating mm-hmm. is done right, it just seems like part of the, the fabric of the room, and you can't imagine the works any other way. That's so cool. Some of the conclusions I've drawn here. I also use the right tool for the right job. One of the questions people ask me all the time is, you know, uh, who's your favorite artist, or what's your favorite kind of art? And I I see that's like asking a carpenter, what's your favorite tool? Well, that depends. Are we framing a house today, putting a roof on, making a piece of furniture? You know, depends on what tool it is. You know, what, what's the job we're doing today? And I think these, each work of art, to some extent, serves as an instrument. And you use the right tool for the right job. I, I have people who go and cuss an abstract uh, painting because it's not sufficiently representational, and then turn around and cuss a representational painting because it's not sufficiently abstract. And I, I seem that I think that's like cussing your Corvette for not being a pickup truck, or your pickup truck <laughs> for not being a Corvette. You know, I mean, it seems a preposterous thing to do. If you were planning on hauling hay today, don't bring the Corvette. Right. You know, if you were planning on hauling ass, you know, probably not the pickup truck. Um, the right <laughs> tool for the job you're, you're trying to do today. And so I think that's something that's perhaps a little bit different where curators are concerned is that that while we can have epiphanies within each work and, and make you know infinite discoveries within each work of art, when we curate, the work becomes an instrument to the greater narrative that hopefully provides context to the rest of the works and then makes them more powerful, more meaningful, deeper and transcendent to the audience than if they just experience the work in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Well, you brought up epiphanies, Joseph. What are some of your epiphanies? You know, when when Sabin was uh, was uh, at my place the other day, he walked around an exhibit by an artist named Roberto Gonzalez that was. Uh, a type of sort of neo-Mexicanist abstraction uh, that was riffing on pre-Columbian uh, iconography and metaphysical motifs. And if somebody sees Sabin's work and then they would look at Roberto Gonzalez's work, they think, these two guys are as different as night and day. Mm-hmm. And if they would see somebody who makes work like Sabin, and they would think, boy, he's not going to like these paintings. <laughs> and <laughs> And, in fact, as he walked around them, uh, he seemed remarkably impressed with them. And, more importantly, he seemed remarkably empathetic with them. 
mm-hmm. was deriving exactly what was taking place in the work. And I know both of the artists in this case, and I know the context of both in, in this moment. And I remember thinking, you know, you guys aren't that different. And that would be a surprise to a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> and when you hear them both talk, they're both very much concerned with the metaphysics of art. They're very much concerned about something past the contemporary era. They're both concerned about being aware of history and speaking forward to the future simultaneously. They have a lot of the same priorities, but overwhelming them. When you just get down to the why they do things, rather than what they do or how they do it, when you look at why they do it, had a remarkable amount in common. And that Sabin could, could uh, you know, empathize with this that was so prima facially uh, aesthetically other to him was quite revealing. And I wouldn't call it quite an epiphany because I suspected as much, but it was, it was you know, sort of a vindication of, a, of an idea that I find that a lot of really, really great artists think remarkably alike regardless of the work they make. And they make it for remarkably similar reasons. And when I don't hear these kind of reasons for making art, I get suspicious, almost regardless <laughs> of what the art looks like. What are those reasons? You know, uh, personal catharsis, uh, ideological propaganda, um, Consciousness raising. Boy, more exploitation has been done self-righteously in the name of raising consciousness. Yeah. I often hear that. Boy, it's amazing how some bourgeois person will exploit the suffering of somebody else to show their own sanctimony and not do squat for the person who was actually suffering. Yeah. There's a lot of My that. goodness. <laughs> Ain't there a ubiquity of that stuff? And so if somebody is really transcendent, if they are really conscientious, if they really are about empathy with humanity, they tend to be a good deal less pedantic about it, tend to be a good deal less self-serving about it, and they tend to not have a giant ego chip on their shoulder. Now, I find that the best artists are actually remarkably easy to talk to about the most profound things. That's cool. What are some of the major challenges you've faced in your work so far, and what are some of the major rewards? Well, the rewards are, one, you get to be around quite a few artists and that's better than being around politicians Um, (laughs) usually when they're not the same thing right right okay okay um i've i've led an absolutely blessed life in that regard i mean i've held leonardo da vinci drawings in my my own hand grayfield drawings in my own hand 
Michelangelo yeah. works in my own in my own hands. Objects from Tut's tomb in my own hands. I have the, the burnishing stone of Akhenaten that he used to burnish the papyrus to write the hymn of the Aten. I wow. have that stone in my hand. And you being who you are, you should be appreciating that. I am appreciating <laughs> that. that. <laughs> That's exactly okay. what me. That was what you think it is in spades. And I've had a lot of experiences like that, where I can call up the National Gallery and say, you got a bunch of Durer and Titian drawings back in storage? Over? And they say, yeah. I said, will you pull them all out for me? And I'm going to be there on Thursday. And I show up and they open up a back door and I sit down and they hand me some gloves and a, and a loop and I can sit there for hour after hour in a little private room and go through drawings. That's pretty damn cool. That's backstage of Pink Floyd right there. I mean, that's that is that is awesome. That is heaven. That is heaven. <laughs> okay, I mean, in those days, it's good. It's real good, and you wouldn't trade place with anybody on those days. When you're walking around the galleries with leading a, a tour group somewhere, and you see fifty light bulbs come on over fifty heads at once. And they gasp in front of a work of art that they had walked past earlier. Yeah, that's a good day at the ranch. Mm-hmm. And that's all right. But I was telling a, uh, a friend of mine who was a photographer here in San Antonio, a guy named Ramin Samandari. He's a brilliant Persian photographer that does this just incredible portrait work. And he's recently done a, a project where he's been doing faces of art in San Antonio. He's photographed two or three hundred people who are artists in Conoscenti and, and, and San Antonio. And, and I know a lot of these people. And so the, these portraits are utterly revealing. He's a, he's a brilliant photographer. But one of the things he said to me the other day when I, I went in, because it was my turn to get photographed, so I walked in and got my picture taken. One of the things he said, he has to, has to ask people, so what are you? Are you a painter, a sculptor, an artist? What are you? And people always tell him that they are something and a curator. No one ever walks in anymore and says, hey, I'm a photographer, or I'm a painter, or I'm a carver, or I'm a modeler, or I'm, a, or I'm an artist. They're always like, I'm a photographer and a curator. I'm a painter and a curator. I'm a performance artist and a curator. He said, you know, there can't be that much curating going down in San Antonio. There can't actually be <laughs> 250 curators in San Antonio. That, that, this doesn't make sense to me. He said, you're the only person who ever walked in here and said, I'm just a curator. And, and I told him something that I think is probably relevant to the downside. When you're a curator or a museum director, you're also working with boards of trustees, politicians, aristocrats, all kinds of people. And you're dependent on that money to make these events happen because curating ain't a poor man's hobby. Neither is running a museum. Mm-hmm. And you've got to go where the money is. And when you do that, you encounter the Philistines and the bullies and the people who want to show you that the power to destroy is more immediately wielded than the power to create. And so I told him, I said, the next time, I mean, somebody comes up and tells you they're a curator, ask them, have you ever been boned by the head of a law firm? Have you ever been mugged by a real estate developer? <laughs> have you ever had, 
been smacked upside the head by a surgeon. <laughs> Have you ever been beat senseless by a, and humiliated by a bank vice president? Because if you haven't, you ain't a curator. <laughs> Joseph, we're running out of time. We've got about three minutes left. Can you tell me a fun fact about you that people wouldn't know? A fun fact that people wouldn't know. Uh, I don't know a fun fact that people wouldn't that's The people wouldn't know thing. I don't know. Uh, people who know me would, would guess all of these things. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I guess I guess that you, that you can you know you can be a uh, a prog rocker and a redneck and a classicist and an art critic all at the same time. Maybe that's something that most people wouldn't guess. They think they're mutually exclusive. I think you know? it's kind of cool that they're all together in one package. <laughs> you know, you you can you know hang out with you know with Willie Nelson and Judas Priest in the same week. You know, <laughs> it, it, it can happen. <laughs> <laughs> what what makes you a redneck? So, Just being in Texas. I grew up in San Antonio, and uh, and uh, that yeah, just being in Texas, <laughs> it rubs off on you. <laughs> it does. You know, what, I mean, what's there's the one a reason about- that Texans are are loathed <laughs> and, and hated worldwide, and yet people are still a little curious about them. Always curious. What's the one work of art you haven't seen in person that you want to see? Ooh. There's, there's, there's more than I could count. But Top three. Top I, might, three. I might suggest the, uh, the Virgin of the Rocks. Oh, yeah. By Leonardo da Vinci. Either one of them. I haven't seen either one of them. But I have held preparatory drawings for both of those paintings in my hand. Oof. And so, yeah, I felt, this is weird. I haven't seen the paintings, but I've held the preparatory drawings. That's backwards. That's, that's cool. The same as paintings. I should have seen the paintings before I held the preparatory, preparatory drawings. And so I think that I, I have a, an impending date with those two paintings. I think so. Well, Joseph, I want to thank you for being on the show. You were amazing. You had so much to say, and you've given me and my listeners so much to think about. Well, uh, thank you for for having me, and uh, I hope it wasn't boring. No, it was awesome. Thank you. Well, thank you. So that was Joseph Bravo, um, a curator, with some very funny stories about being a curator and some very thoughtful things to say about it. And you can find out more about Joseph Bravo at josephmbravo.com. So I hope you enjoyed listening to him. I certainly did. And tune in next week, which will probably be back to our usual time. This has been Tracy L. Slatten on the Independent Artists and Thinkers Network. Thanks for joining us. Come back next week.